Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 243, and today's guest is Matt Johnston, CEO of Get Kraken. As with most entrepreneurs, you never forget the people who supported you from the early days of the company. I first met Matt towards the end of 2009. VentureFizz had recently launched, and I was looking for advertising sponsors to help fund future development of the site. At that point in time, Matt was heading up marketing for a company called Utest, now called Applause, and they were looking to increase exposure for the company. Well, it ended up being a great match, and they were the first company to sponsor VentureFizz. Without that check, who knows what would have happened, and I am so grateful. Matt has been involved in lots of venture-backed tech companies that have scaled. His career has progressed through the marketing ranks into leadership positions to the point of becoming a CEO for startups. Thus, I was really excited to hear about his professional journey and all the stories of scaling companies, plus the lessons learned along the way. Matt recently joined Git Kraken, the maker of some of the most popular developer tools in the entire Git ecosystem as their CEO. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like advice on transitioning through the leadership ranks to a CEO position, Matt's background in terms of growing up in Michigan, and what he learned from his early experience at Herman Miller, the story behind the fast track of his career to the point of leading marketing at startups, and the details on scaling applause, how he transitioned into a CEO position at Modic and their acquisition by Acquia, all the details on Git Kraken and their growth plans ahead, and so much more. Okay, quick side note, if you have been enjoying the VentureFizz podcast, then please leave us a five-star rating on iTunes or Spotify. The more reviews we have, the more that people will discover these amazing entrepreneurial stories. Thanks in advance, I appreciate all of your support. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Matt. Matt, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Keith. Matt, I'm excited to talk to you for our podcast. Um, you know, there's a lot of personal gratitude that I have for you as an individual and the support you've provided to VentureFizz since the very, very early days when I started this site as a side project. I had to figure out a way to get some money out of it to continue to <laughs> develop uh, the site. And you were one of our first sponsors, Utest was a sponsor of VentureFizz. So uh, you wrote us a check, which I was like, when I first started this site, I'm like, oh my God, someone actually wrote me a check. This is amazing. Uh, it was it was you, General Catalyst, Akamai, and Foley Hoag, the law firm, that were the four sponsors of our site. So I am incredibly grateful for all the support you provided through the years. Uh, obviously, now you've done some great things uh, as far as being CEO of companies. So we have a lot to talk about. Now, along those lines, um, I thought it would be helpful for our audience. If anyone's trying to work their way into an executive level position as a CEO, you've been successful in working your way up through the ranks of the marketing side of the house into leading startups. So what advice would you give on how to make that transition from you know, any executive position to a CEO? Well, first of all, uh, you're very welcome on the VentureFist side. Uh, I will just tell you way back then, that was really early, probably 2009 or 10 for Utest. And we were trying to build our brand, not only for prospective customers, but for prospective employees. Uh, so it was a win-win, but I love that story because it, it really tells me and, and really helps you relate to startups everywhere, right? You know, the, you always think about the restaurant that framed their first dollar. Well, it's no different for startups when they get that first customer, that first, you know, four figure, five figure, six figure customers. So I'm glad that we can be part of that for VentureBiz. Uh, my advice on you know how to go from a, a functional line of business leader 
to a CEO, um, I think there's probably three things that really helped me get there. The first one was was being curious about the business, not just being curious about marketing, but being curious about the business, being open and, and really wanting to understand what happens to a lead after it falls into sales. How does product make decisions? Uh, you know, how do we close the books at the end of the month or the quarter? How does the talent team think about recruiting? And so if you're naturally curious, I think it, it helps. Uh, you know, if you're just focused on, I want to be the best VP of engineering in the world, you can still graduate and become a wonderful, phenomenal CEO. But it's always helpful, I think, when you have a natural curiosity of, of what's help, what's happening elsewhere in the org chart. Um, so it, it also helped me that I didn't start off in marketing. You know, my first job at Herman Miller was in customer service, uh, and I was awful at it. I was terrible. Uh, so it, it helped me learn a little bit about what I didn't want to do. And then I quickly graduated into project management and product management. And I think just that that breadth of experience in my first five, six years really helped me become, you know, speak natively to other parts of the organization. And that helped me later on. Um, the second thing is find the right mentors. Uh, and it's great if you can work for a mentor uh, or more likely if your boss can become a mentor. And I was fortunate enough uh, that, you know, the CEO of Applause, a guy named Duran Rubini, um, you know, not only was he open to me, you know, seeing things other than marketing, being responsible for things other than marketing, he kind of foisted it upon me. He did a really good job of, of you know, keeping me uncomfortable. Uh, you know, so within a few months of joining the company, I, instead of just owning marketing, I also own community. And then a few years later, it was, well, why don't you take on the partner channel? And then it was, why don't you take on corporate, you know, company strategy and corp dev? And every time you just branch out a little bit, you find yourself in, in different and deeper conversations with the CFO, with the VP of engineering, with the sales team. And I think just that breadth of experience sets you up to, to at least understand the size and shape of the CEO role. Uh, and then the last thing I will say, and this one sucks as a CMO, but there's no substitute for owning the number. Uh, you know, As much as we feel like we own a number, I own a lead number, I own a demand gen number, a pipeline number, I completely agree with you, but until you really own the number and at any given point in the quarter, you can, you can very quickly say exactly how many business days are left in the quarter. Uh, I don't think you necessarily know what it's like to be a CRO or a CEO. And I think that's why a lot of companies do look down that sales path uh, or general managerial path for CEO candidates, because they understand the, the pressure of the clock ticking down on the quarter and where's the pipeline and are we, are, you know, are we getting deals through? So those would be my three pieces of advice. Great, great, great advice. Well, let's rewind the clock. So where did you grow up? What were you like as a child? Uh, I grew up in the metropolitan capital of Kalkaska, Michigan, which is a 2000 person town with two stoplights. Uh, so grew up in a rural area, you know, spent a lot of time playing sports as a kid, um, did well in school. So I don't even have any cool entrepreneurial stories about blowing something up or starting a business as a 12 year old. It was a pretty, you know, pretty um, typical idyllic uh, Midwestern childhood, uh, great family. Um, but yeah, it, 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 it gave me a foundation of things like pragmatism and hard work that, that I didn't appreciate it at the time when I was mowing the lawn and not doing it right uh, or sweeping out the garage. But those things ended up benefiting me later on. Now, you're also an athlete. So you, from what I gathered, was a, were a pitcher. So you played uh, baseball in, in college, which is, you know, regardless of what level, whether it's D1, D2, D3, there's still a high level of commitment playing college. 
uh, sports. So, so how do you think that helped shape you? Yeah. Well, first of all, you're being very generous with the term athlete. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, Calvin University's Division Three uh, team, and, and I played baseball. I was a left-handed pitcher uh, in Grand Rapids, Michigan. I think the biggest thing I took away from it it was it was probably the first time that I was competing against uh, athletes and players that were just fundamentally better than me. Um, and so, very quickly, you either get out of show business or you figure out how to compete with people that are just better equipped. And there's some pretty interesting analogies about startup life there, right? You know, you don't come in better funded than Microsoft. You don't come in with, you know, a, you know, a bigger distribution platform than Amazon. You have to chip away at it and you have to outthink them and outsmart them and outprepare them. Uh, and it's the boring stuff, right? It's practice and it's persistence and it's preparation. But that's, you know, that's the only way I was able to, to even participate at that level. Uh, and I think that that carries over when you're starting to think about being an entrepreneur, because if there was a straight line to success, then 20 people would have already done it. You're usually, you know, you have the odds stacked against you in about four different ways and things like persistence and things like preparation, while not sexy, uh, end up making the difference. All right. So you gave a heads up already around your first position out of college, which was at Herman Miller, uh, you know, furniture manufacturer, which is a great brand, great innovative you know, very much a design oriented type of company. So yeah. how did you land that job and how did you work your way through the different ranks within that company? Yeah. Calvin university is based in Grand Rapids and Herman Miller's uh, based in Zeeland, Michigan, which is about 25 miles away. So it's one of the major employers uh, in that part of Michigan. So, you know, I certainly liked that it was a premium company, a great place to work. Uh, they had a, a very strong, as you mentioned, design ethos and, and kind of a premium brand. So it was, it was easy to fall in love with Herman Miller, the company. Um, and so, you know, I, I was in customer service. I mentioned that was not my cup of tea. Um, and, and I realized very quickly why it was because I didn't have a lot of ownership, right? If you're in customer service and you're the 38th member of a 38 person team, here's your playbook, here's your scripts, here's your Q and a, and that just didn't resonate for me. Uh, and I didn't realize it at the time, but the, the reason that future jobs really, really connected for me is because I felt a lot of ownership. Uh, and so that was really meaningful to me. And Herman Miller gave me a chance to move from, uh, you know, customer service into project management for their new e-commerce division. This was during the dot-com bubble era. Uh, and then from project management into product management. Uh, and as part of that, they actually offered to, to move me to New York City. Um, and at the time, I had been accepted to University of Michigan Business School, which is my dream school. And so I said, no. And they said, well, what if we, what if we helped you with your business school at NYU or Columbia? And so they were fortunate enough to, to partner with me on, on uh, business school at NYU. Um, so that was a great journey for me. I was, you know, I was at Herman Miller for between seven and eight years uh, and couldn't say enough good things about the company. And you must have like gotten a lot of exposure to all facets of the business because you started out in support, then you moved into product. And, you know, that was e-commerce and learning the ropes of customer acquisition and how to tweak a website to make it more successful for sales and things like that. Yeah. So after I was done with NYU, um, and, and I will say one of the coolest experiences in hindsight was working at Herman Miller during the day on their e-commerce site. And as you mentioned, it was very, it was the softer side of business, right? They're, they're artists, right? It's all premium branding and wonderful design and just this thoughtful experience. 
And then at night I would go to school at NYU, which is just a straight up quant shop, right? It's all about the numbers because half the people there are coming from Wall Street. And so I didn't realize it at the time, but that combination actually really set me up to be a, a progressive modern CMO. Now at the time I wasn't even in marketing. Uh, so that wasn't on my mind, but the, the the quant hard science side of NYU plus the softer design branding side of Herman Miller uh, really became formative for me as a marketer. Now your journey into startups. So how did how did all that come together? Yeah. So after I left Herman Miller, uh, I joined a company called Mimeo uh, and Mimeo is on demand online printing. Uh, so they print really sophisticated, complex documents. Uh, and they made a bet on me as their director of digital marketing. And so that was my first full-fledged, I'm a full-time marketer type role. It was also my first time with a tech company, a software company, and a startup. Uh, so there was a lot of new for me in that experience. But what I learned, it was the, a continuation of what I had learned at Herman Miller, that the more ownership and influence I had, the more invested I became. And so the smaller the company, the smaller the team, the earlier I got in, the more I could actually influence things and really feel ownership of, of, you know, not just ideas, but results. And that really resonated and connected for me. So Mimeo was my first startup, even though it was, it was a couple hundred people uh, and really my first pure marketing role. So, you know, I was only there for uh, about two years, but really was, was uh, an inflection point in a couple of different ways in my career journey. So looking at your next step is at OnForce, which I remember that company, they were backed by General Catalyst. And mm -hmm. if I remember correctly, they were kind of like a like a geek squad type of company. Yeah, that it would... was geek squad through crowdsourcing. So you wanted someone yeah. to hang your flat panel TV or, or set up your network or fix your printer. Uh, you could go and they had, you know, 100,000 IT professionals, different certifications, specialties, ratings. Um and, and really that was, you know, if Mimeo was my first foray into startups, then OnForce was my first foray into two-sided businesses or community-driven businesses where you had customers on one side of the equation and a community of, in this case, IT professionals on the other side of the equation. Uh, and so, yeah, OnForce was was really interesting because it, it, it took me beyond just marketing into the dynamics of an online community. And then even just the, the complexity and and nuance of building a, the business model for a two-sided business. And at that point, that's when you graduated to more of that VP role. Um, so if you look at your experience, one would say, wow, you are why I always promote people joining startups because of that ownership and acceleration of your career. So, you know, what advice would you give to others on, you know, getting to that VP role in that, you know, short duration of time? Yeah, I, I'm a big believer. I've given this advice to a, a bunch of different people over the years that if you know exactly what you want to do or think you do, then big companies can be great because they will teach you to be world class at that lane, right? As a product marketer or as a, you know, as a, an accounts receivable person or as a recruiter going and doing that at big companies, um, you know, you oftentimes kind of wear one hat and you really get to specialize. And there's oftentimes training curricula and mentorship down these very specific paths and very specialized paths. If you aren't sure what you want to do, or you are sure, and it's that you want to wear three hats, then startups are fantastic because instead of just the depth of one lane, you will get the breadth of an eight line, eight lane highway. Uh, and it won't even be by choice. It'll be like, you're in marketing. So here are the 19 things that you're now responsible for. Uh, so I think startups offer great breadth of experience. And I think big companies offer great depth of experience. And it's really just about what fits for you. 
In my case, uh, I think I was able to graduate from manager to director to VP relatively quickly, in part just because of work ethic, um, meaning I was putting in, you know, 60, 70 hour weeks just regularly, um, not to get promoted, just because I enjoyed the work. I enjoyed my teammates. That to me was almost the the more adult equivalent of sports. Like I could no longer go pitch, but I could do this and it was a way to compete and it was a way to strive and a way to achieve things and kind of measure myself. And so, yeah, I, I think, you know, that that's one half of it is just work ethic. The other half or the other piece of that, obviously you have to get results. You have to be in, you know, in performance. The last thing I'll say, and it's underrated, if you're working at companies that are flat or shrinking, it's almost impossible to get promoted. Uh, and so you have to pick the right companies. If you're trying to fast track yourself and say, I want to get to a director level, I want to be a VP by the time I'm 30, I want to be a C level by the time I'm 40, whatever your goals are, picking the right companies matters a lot. Because if you're in a great situation that's growing, then there's opportunities everywhere for you to, you know, to move laterally, to move diagonally, or just to move up vertically. If you're in a company where it's flat or heaven forbid shrinking, and it's really, really hard. You know, there's not a lot of opportunity there. You're waiting for someone else to move on or get fired in order for you to move up a step. And it's it's a slog. So if you really want to fast track yourself, I would just encourage people to, to select the companies and their growth pile, uh, growth profile very, very carefully. All right. So how did you get connected with the team at UTES? Well, I shouldn't even say team because you were really early at that company. So <laughs> uh, and it did rebrand to applause. But how did you get connected with that company? Yes, yeah, so I was employee number eight at UTES uh, in Q4 of 2008. So we were right in the midst of the Great Recession. Uh, and I was at OnForce at the time. I was the VP of marketing and we were about 80 people. And I literally just saw an ad on LinkedIn. There was no recruiter. There was no networking. There was no, you know, I wasn't running a job search. They had posted a job and LinkedIn very helpfully said, here's something you might be interested in. Uh, and I think I was having a, a long day. And so I just, I didn't have a resume or anything. I just dropped a note. And by the time I came back to my office an hour later, uh, I had an email from a guy named Duran Rubini and he was saying, can we talk now uh, in typical Duran fashion? And I said, no, I have a job, you know, like, leave me alone. And I, I actually thought I would put him off. I said, Hey, you know, why don't we talk tonight at 8 PM? You know, that'll, that'll kind of back him off. And he replied 30 seconds later and said, sure, I'll, you know, let's talk at eight. And so we talked for about an hour uh, that evening. And so, yeah, it was an interesting day because when I woke up that morning, I wasn't even thinking about a different job. I wasn't thinking about a resume. I wasn't thinking about that. By the time I put my head on the pillow that night, I had not only applied for a job, apparently, uh, I had already conducted a first interview and we had an in-person interview lined up for like two days later. So in typical Duran fashion, he, you know, he saw what he thought would be a good candidate uh, and moved really, really quickly. So I got introduced to them through pure happenstance and the early iterations of LinkedIn's algorithms. All right. So during that stretch, you scaled a company to some pretty aggressive goals. So talk about that experience and, you know, kind of the different steps along the way. Yeah. I mentioned earlier, like, you know, it, it, be really thoughtful about the company you join. It's not just the salary. It's not just the title. It's what kind of experience are you going to have there in two years, four years, six years, uh, including growth opportunities, mentorship, that sort of thing. I, you know, I'd love to tell you that, that I looked at UTES the way it was then and said, this is going to be a rocket ship. I didn't. Uh, honestly, the, the biggest reason I, I took the role, I was moving from VP of marketing with an 80 person company to VP of marketing for an eight person company. It's hard to even call that a lateral step. 
And it really was because it was my first opportunity to report to the CEO and to be the person who was you know, making the decisions, making the recommendations and living with the results. Whereas at Onforce, I had a fabulous mentor who you know, gave me a lot of leeway, but I also knew he was gonna keep me from running off the road and into the ditch. And so I, I wanted to take the training wheels off. I wanted to see if I could you know, actually go be the lead of marketing and, and make those hard subjective decisions. And so, you know, walked in the door at UTES, we were eight people, uh, the two founders plus, you know, a few engineers, but it was really, really early. We had, I believe, 10 beta customers at the time. Um, you know, I was employee eight, and I think we were less than 100,000 in revenue uh, for that year. And by the time I left eight years later, we were, you know, nearly 500 people. We were um, nearing 100 million in revenue. Um, and, you know, I was not only responsible for marketing, but also community, the uh, biz dev partner program, and then corp dev and strategy as well. And so picking that company and, and then us growing it together uh, was, a, was a, an inflection point in my career, right? I don't think I would have been sitting in a CEO seat once or, or even multiple times uh, if I hadn't had that experience. Uh, and it always makes me think of the, the old axiom. Uh, that uh, failure is an orphan and success has a thousand fathers. Um, because if you do catch on that right rocket ship, not only do you get the growth opportunity there and you have to learn about scaling, you have to learn about going from an inside sales model to an outside sales model. And now what do we do with a partner channel? And now what do we do that we're expanding into Europe and Asia and we're building an international team and now we've got a matrixed organization. So it gives you all these, it forces you to, to go through these, these really hard, wonderful learning experiences but when you come out the other side of it, uh, you also look at, you know, there's new doors open to you. And all you have to do is look at local success stories like HubSpot and how many people they fostered that have, you know, become founders, that have become CEOs, that have become angel investors. And, you know, a lot of that has to do with them hiring great people and, and applause hiring great people. A lot of it has to do with the, you know, you, you're forced to learn new things when you're trying to scale the company. And I think a lot of it has to do with the perception that you walk out with a little bit of a halo uh, that like, oh, wow, you were, you know, you really helped build applause. You really helped build HubSpot. Uh, so I think there's some real hard substance to it that you did learn some lessons that you wouldn't have learned at, at you know, a, a couple of middling startups. And then I think there's also just the perception side of it that people say, wow, you've been through that. You went through fundraising, you went through an IPO, you went through an exit, whatever it might be. They know that you've, you know, you've had to write some chapters on the fly. Well, you mentioned HubSpot and that that's a company that I admire and the way that they treat their employees. And when people leave to go do something greater or start a company, they support those employees as healthy attrition versus, oh, you're leaving and you're no longer a HubSpotter. You know, it's like you're always part of the family mentality. Yeah. So at, at what point did you know that, hey, it's it's time for me to move on? Because you were part of this rocket ship. It was a you know, a company that scaled, great success. It did end up getting acquired by Vista Equity. So at what point do you know, hey, it's time to do something new? Yeah, so I was there a total of eight years. And I think it was pretty early into my eighth year. We were at an evening offsite and we had a new executive who brought up an idea. And, you know, I kind of chuckled and, and Duran, the CEO, chuckled. And we said, oh, yeah, remember when we thought free trials would be a good idea back in 2012? And I went home that night and I just realized, like, I've seen this movie. I've seen the, you know, the uncut version. I've seen it with subtitles. I've seen it Spanish language. I felt like I'd seen the movie in all of its iterations. And I realized that not only was that unhealthy for me, 
I think it's doing a disservice to the company, to the brand, to the team, if you're almost snow blind, uh, that like, oh yeah, I've seen it all. I'm almost too familiar with it. Okay, the CRO is gonna say this and then the CFO is gonna rebut with that. And then I'm gonna chime in with this. And it, it, it felt like it was almost, you know, familiarity I think is a virtue until it's not. And I, I felt like not only did I need new scenery, new challenge, um, but I, I felt like it was good for the company. And that was a hard conclusion to, to reach in part because you're right, you don't get dealt cards that good very often, right? You could work for a hundred startups and not get cards as good as a HubSpot hand or an Acquia hand or an applause hand. And so really tough to walk away with that, knowing that the next hand you might get dealt a pair of twos and you're going to have to play that hand. Um, but, it, you know, after a lot of just kind of consideration and even conversations with Ron, um, probably by the mid-year mark, I had come back to him and just said, yeah, I think, you know, I think end of year's the right time for me. Uh, and that coincided with me meeting my next opportunity. Well, I'm sure you always had opportunities, whether it was executive recruiters, you know, knocking on your door for the next great CMO at this great venture funded startup. So, but did you know that you wanted to be a CEO next and how did that end up coming together? Yeah, that's funny. Um, no, uh, I, I guess when I started at Herman Miller, I thought, yes, I want to be the CEO. Well, why do you want to be the CEO? I don't know. That's the highest position. So, you know, I just want to be the highest position. And then I started to learn what a CEO does. And I very, very quickly was like, no, I don't want to be the CEO. Uh, in fact, what I, I thought all the way up through Mimeo, through Onforce, and, and even through Applause was I wanted to be the CEO's right-hand person. Um, that number two role was ideal for me. And, and I still enjoy that, I'll admit. Um, so, no, I, I was actually the person who was like, you know, Dron would come to me and say, you know, you're going to be a CEO. And I'm trying to prepare you for that. I'm trying to give you opportunities and trying to, you know, have you own a number, have you get more operationally responsible uh, for things outside of marketing. And my response was always, I'll take the new responsibility, fine, but I'm not going to be a CEO. And uh, I hope he never listens to this, but uh, as usual, Theron was right and I was wrong. Uh, so yeah, I did not, I, I did not set out for that. Um, that was not an objective of mine, but I think as I started to exit applause, it became similar to why I had joined applause years before. It was the curiosity of like, could I sit in that chair? You know, could I own more than just marketing and, and community and those sorts of things? Could I be responsible for, you know, the full organization, both the product and the go-to-market strategy for the financial performance? And so I think it, it became kind of a natural curiosity uh, to, to push yourself and see, you know, how would I do in that, that type of capacity? So how did that come together with Modic as you know being your first CEO role? Yeah, so as is usually the case, uh, I got connected through word of mouth, uh, meaning one of their early investors uh, connected me with the, the Modic founder uh, who had who was the founder of the open source project Modic, uh, and I had known that that investor from past lives, um, you know, from pitching Utest actually to them years before, uh, and so we just always stayed connected. And, you know, one of those life lessons that comes out of that is, you know, just really, really try to be thoughtful about the relationships you build at a conference or with a boss or with a partner, or with an investor. In this case, it wasn't even an investor at UTest. It was just someone I had met along the way. Uh, and that became, you know, very much a, a mentoring relationship um, and, and ultimately, you know, got us, got me connected with Modic. All right. So you're in this role now as CEO. Uh, Modic, they provided uh, marketing automation solutions. So like a HubSpot, just an open source product or open source initiative that was productized. So 
what, uh, like, how did you end up, you know, starting to build the company under your leadership, you know, whether it was, uh, okay, we need to go to market, you know, the marketing playbook, you gotta be thinking about, you know, sales, you know, everything's falling under your umbrella now. So how did you start to build the company? Yeah, it was interesting because I had a lot of context in the space as a CMO, right? I'd been a power user. I'd been an administrator. I'd been the economic buyer for HubSpot, for Marketo, for Pardot. So I, 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 you know, I felt like I had a, a lot of domain expertise about the products, the competitive landscape, the space, the buyers, you know, what the use cases were. Um, and when I joined the, the Modic open source project was, was not quite three years old. So it was still pretty early. Uh, in terms of just the open source project, but the commercial entity was much, much, much earlier. Uh, we were pretty much pre-revenue, pre-customer. And so the first thing I did was um, decide that we're gonna we're going to soft launch in a beta mode. And it was going to be a paid beta. Uh, that was important to me that that any customers had some skin in the game. I didn't care about the revenue, but I cared that they were invested, that they were going to hold us accountable, that they were gonna, you know, no one will tell you your baby is ugly quite like a paying customer. Uh, and so we had free hold, users. Hold that thought. Hold that thought. Cause I think this is important because some founders may think like, well, I need the logo. So let me, you know, I just need one or two good logos. So let me do this for free. What's the downside of doing it for free versus the skin in the game? Yeah. So we actually had a freemium. We, we had a freemium offering um, and it was being used by individuals and companies that could afford $0. Uh, and they, I think, you know, because they were paying $0, it was, well, you know, I ran into this issue, but yeah, I mean, come on, it's this free solution and it's this fully fringe marketing automation platform. And if we didn't have great support or if we didn't have that integration, or if we had an issue in our platform, they let us off the hook. And so I'm a big believer in freemium and product-led growth. We'll talk about that when we get into my current opportunity, but there's nothing like a paying customer to to really start to harden the muscles uh, within a company, within the product team, the engineering team, the sales, customer success support across the board. Um, if if they're paying you zero dollars, then it's hard to qualify their feedback. It's hard to you know for them to to believe that they're really going to hold you accountable. I didn't care if somebody paid us five thousand dollars a year or fifty thousand dollars a year because to me it wasn't about the revenue. It was about being held accountable. That was the only way we were going to harden our solutions to the point where we could go be credible commercially, uh, you know, in the mid market where it's maybe above HubSpot, but it's not yet to Marketo. Well, those customers, you know, they have real expectations. HubSpot has set the bar very high, even when they're an SMB and now they're maybe graduating up to that mid market level. And so, you know, it was, it was important to us that, that we be held accountable because there was no way we were going to succeed from a product perspective or from a support onboarding selling perspective uh, if, if we couldn't go toe-to-toe with Pardot from Salesforce and, um, and Eloqua from Oracle and Marketo from Adobe and then HubSpot is its own thing. So we, you know, we had four Goliaths around us. And so it became very important that we be, you know, commercially hardened and incredible. It also became really important that we find our, our ICP, our ideal customer profile. Like where, you know, where's our foothold in this really crowded market? Well, the company was later acquired by Acquia, which, you know, when I heard that news, I'm like, that's a perfect fit. <laughs> Made a lot of sense, uh, at least from my uh, outside point of view for what that's worth. But um, what were some of the biggest lessons learned or surprises as the CEO of a startup? 
Yeah, first of all, you're right. It was it was a fabulous fit with Acquia. Um, a lot of people don't know this, but Acquia it was actually the first place in Massachusetts where Modic was incubated. Um, and so our first few desks in in the Boston area were actually at Acquia's offices. Uh, and and Dries, the the open source founder of Drupal, who's also the CTO of Acquia, um, and and the Modic founder were you know, knew each other from open source circles. I had actually built partnerships with Acquia when I was at Applause. So there was a lot of, you know, we had shared investors, there was a lot of connective tissue uh, and it made all the sense in the world. They, they really understand open source. They really understand, you know, how do we add commercial value on top of that? It was a dynamite fit for Modic employees and for Modic customers. Uh, so surprises as the CEO, um, I, the first one I think was just appreciating the weight of the title. Uh, and that some of the best advice I got was from a, a first-time CEO who was probably two or three years in front of me. And we got together uh, occasionally and I asked him one time, like, well, what do you know right now as a CEO that I don't yet know? And he, he gave me great advice. He said, especially when you're dealing with a relatively young team that's earlier in their career. And a lot of times in, in startups, you are, you're dealing with people where it's, you know, they're, they're a few years out of school, it's their second job, it's their third job, but they haven't been around the block 10 times. And so he said, you know, you have to watch your choice of words. You have to watch your tone. He's like, you know, he's, he, he mentioned one time, you know, I walked into my office, I was on the phone, I shut the door just a little bit harder than I meant to, just like you, you, you might do any given day. He's like, and I came out after my phone call an hour later and like my, you know, my head of sales and head of marketing ran over and said like, the office is freaking out. Like what's wrong. And he was like, ah, oh, I just didn't, you know, I didn't judge closing that door quite right. So it's always stuck with me that, you know, whether you're a VP of engineering, whether you're a CTO, a CMO, a CEO, um, just appreciating that, that the title carries some weight uh, and you wanna be that much more thoughtful about how you communicate and when you communicate. The other thing that I learned at Modic, I remember uh, we were having an evening conversation, like a strategic uh, evening session. We brought in dinner and the management team's debating something. And I love those sessions. I, it was maybe my favorite part of applause as we'd get together in the evening and we'd mix it up and you know, no, no topics were taboo and you know, you, everything was fair game. And so we're having this kind of conversation at Modic and it's obviously a different type of team and we're not nearly as far along as a company. Uh, and at some point in the conversation, I weighed in the way I, I always had. I was just like, oh yeah, I really think we should turn left. And the conversation just stopped. And, and I was talking to my VP of marketing after that. And I said, well, what happened? We were, you know, we were going along at 80 miles an hour. And she said, yeah, you stopped it. Uh, you weighed in and you weighed in with, with a certain amount of force. And so that was the end of the conversation. And it, again, it just reaffirmed for me. And it's one of the things I brought with me to my new job that the bigger the title, the more responsible you are for not just the words you say, but how you say them, when you say them, to whom you say them. Uh, it's not just, you know, the, the message you try to convey, it's the message that actually gets received by the other party. All right. So what are you up to now? Uh, so I took after Modic sold to Acquia, which was May of 19. I stuck around for about 16 months into the summer of 2020. And as the weather started, uh, then I, I, I decided I was going to go on an indefinite sabbatical, which I've never done in my 20 years. Uh, so I, I'm usually the idiot that like stops a job on Friday and starts the new job on Monday. Uh, so taking an, you know, an, an indeterminate sabbatical was foreign. Uh, and so I really enjoyed my September, October of 2020, uh, as much as you can enjoy life during a pandemic, but I really enjoyed 
getting outside, hiking, biking, just fresh air, spending more time reading, just not in the grind. And then as it is wont to do, the weather started to turn. And I realized uh, this isn't where I want to spend the pandemic month. So I actually looked at Florida, Texas, and Arizona. Uh, I had had great experiences in Scottsdale. And so I spent last winter in Scottsdale, Arizona, just on sabbatical. And it was, you know, a fabulous place to kind of recalibrate and recharge. Uh, and then just this, just a few months ago, actually, I got connected through a Boston area executive search firm called True, uh, reached out and connected with me about a company called Git Kraken, uh, which is a leading provider of Git developer tools. And there were a lot of moving parts. Um, it started the year as a relative, it started 2021 as about a 40 person company. But in the fall, they made a pair of acquisitions of, uh, of, of complementary products. One is called Git Integration for Jira, which does exactly what the name sounds like it does. Uh, and then Git Lens, uh, which is a, an extension for VS Code. Uh, those two combined with the Git Kraken client, which is a desktop client for developers on Windows, Mac, or Linux, so that they can use uh, the, the wonderful power of Git, but do it much more intuitively and safely kind of positioned us as a, a leading provider of Git tools uh, for developers around the world. And so a lot of moving parts. This, these were the first two acquisitions the company had ever made. You know, the company over the course of 2021 went from about 40 employees to nearly 100 employees. We brought in, you know, a new CTO through an acquisition. Uh, it was the first time that we had international team members. Now they brought in a new CEO. Uh, so a lot of moving parts, uh, but I actually joined the company as CEO in October. And so I'm just about a hundred days in right now. So the company, if you look across the tools and the usage, there's already a level of scale. I mean, from what I gather, it's over 10 million developers from over 100,000 organizations are using some level of the portfolio of tools that your company offers. So like you talked about this a little bit earlier. So, you know, the freemium business model, right? The product led growth, like talk about, how that strategy has worked out for this company. Yeah. Um, so if you're not familiar with product-led growth, I, I encourage you to go uh, take some time and look at a uh, Boston area VC named OpenView. I think they've published the best content when it comes to PLG or product-led growth. Uh, I've, got a, I've, I've got a tidbit to add in there. So selfless yeah. plug. So just a couple episodes prior to this one, we have Blake Bartlett, the individual who actually coined the term product-led growth. He was on our podcast. So listen to that episode. It's two before this. Sorry. Definitely <laughs> listen to that one. I think Blake produces some of the best content on LinkedIn, on podcasts like yours. Um, really, you know, there were VCs 10 years ago that were writing the book on SaaS, like the metrics and how you go about building it. OpenView and Blake in particular are doing that uh, when it comes to product-led growth. And so if you're not familiar with product-led growth, you know, think about companies like Slack, Calendly, Dropbox, where it wasn't this army of salespeople and it wasn't a top-down motion, like we're going to go sell to Toyota and we're going to sell 10,000 seats. It's bottom-up adoption, right? And, and Get Kraken uses the same. So John on the development team finds Get Kraken client and he tells Jane about it. And then they tell Steve and Stephanie and at a certain point, their team starts to adopt it. And so, you know, it's very much a product-led, low-touch um, motion and it's very much bottom-up. Uh, meaning we don't go and look at, you know, we don't go and look at a company and say, wow, they've got 10,000 developers. We look at it and say like, oh, there's five people that are using our product over here. And three of them upgraded to the paid version of our product uh, so that they could unlock more capabilities. 
And the result of that, you mentioned, you know, well over 10 million developers using our range of tools from the Git Kraken client to Git Lens to Git integration for Jira. Um, the funny thing is the list of brand names that is a who's who of technology companies. Uh, and not just like the, you know, the Microsofts and Googles and Apples that you would think of, but traditional companies in insurance and financial services and government entities and education. And so one of the you know cool things for me is to see a bottom-up motion that still results in having these really big flagship companies that are using tens or hundreds or even thousands uh, of, of licenses of our product. Uh, and also it's, it's cool for me because it, it's super easy to think about, well, tech companies, you know, they have to be software, they have to be tech companies. And then you, you start running into insurance companies or manufacturers uh, or, or even like local and state government entities. And you realize how pervasive software and technology really is in this day and age. So really cool to see, you know, not only the, the who's who, but even local companies like LogMe and like HubSpot uh, being users of Git Kraken products. So you're only 100 days in, so it might be an unfair question, but what, like, what are the plans ahead as far as growth? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, I mentioned that we made our first two acquisitions. Uh, and so Q4 and Q1 really, really focused on, on integrating the people, the products, the technology, uh, and making sure that you know, we're a, a good steward and a good home to those existing employees and those existing customers, uh, because you know, it's not just bringing in the brand name or bringing in the, you know, the, the leadership, it's bringing in the entire family within GIJ, including their customers and partners and their relationship with Atlassian. And then on the GitLens side, uh, you know, same sort of thing. So really focused on integration. Uh, we have strong, strong growth goals. I mentioned we went from 40 people to right around 100. We'll be adding more than 50 additional employees across the US and Europe uh, in 2022. So I think 2021 will really serve as a, an inflection point in the growth of Git Crack and the company. Uh, and and you know, going forward, we have very ambitious uh, goals in terms of growing user base, growing our product suite, uh, and ultimately growing top line revenue as well. I guess this is a very fair question to ask you since you are 100 days in. For anyone that is you know, becoming a CEO of a company, what should they be thinking about those first 90 days? Because, you know, you're coming into this leadership role. Um, there's a lot going on. So in those first 90 days, what are some of the baseline metrics, accomplishments, you know, strategies that you should be thinking about? Yeah, I think first it depends on the company, obviously, and in the situation that that new CEO is walking into. Uh, I've heard stories of people, you know, who said, no, I spent my first 30 days, you know, reorganizing everything, or I had to, you know, cut 18,000 people. Luckily, you know, get Kraken's in a good place. Uh, but if you, you know, if, if you're not walking into smoldering ashes, then I become a big believer in context. And what I mean by that is that I want myself and any other leaders uh, coming in to get Kraken to take the time, not only to understand how do things work, but why do they work that way? Um, otherwise, you know, you can find yourself pulling levers and turning knobs and not realizing that there's a ripple effect four doors down. So I think as soon as you really understand how stuff works and why it works that way, not only do you have the context to make good decisions quickly, but you understand what the ripple effect of those decisions is. Now, as you build out leadership teams across different, you know, all the different functional areas that make up a tech company, what do you consider the, like the hardest role to hire for? And, and how do you go about making sure you get it right? Yeah, it's funny. My, my view on that has changed dramatically. Um, I remember a time, you know, when I would be proud that like, oh, we're at 
50 people, 75 people, 100 people, and we don't have, you know, formalized recruiting and HR and, you know, culture just sort of happens. Uh, and, and at Modic, you know, I, across time, I guess, I really learned the importance of getting your people, talent, recruiting, culture side of things right early on. Right? When it's you and two engineers, well, all right, the culture is, you know, it is what it is. But the sooner you can get that foundation in place, the better. And so I think that's been a big shift for me as a, a leader. Uh, I used to look at it and say, like, okay, we'll, we'll bring in those sorts of things when we're big enough that we have to, uh, or when we've earned the right to, to have those luxuries. I don't think of them as luxuries anymore. And I think that was part of, you know, me even stepping away and taking a sabbatical was really thinking about, you know, how would I do it differently next time? Um, you know, what things would I want to keep the same and what things would I want to change? And now, and you know, your listeners are, are going to think you're paying me to say this, but I actually think getting, you know, the, to a place where you have the hiring engine, the onboarding, you know, roadmap, the retention programs in place so that you can actually build a top flight team. I think you have to start there uh, before you're scaling your engineering team, before you're looking for that, that rockstar marketer. Um, the sooner you can make those investments and, and, and start to get those things right, the better off you're going to be at the end of year one, year three, year five. Uh, yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, obviously, uh, I'm a little bit biased, but the um, the companies that I've seen I've seen scale and bring in the best talent were the ones that adopted bringing in a professional that was responsible for driving recruiting, uh, you know, their employment branding strategy and certain level of HR from the early days. I mean, I think about David Cancel from Drift. He brought in Keith Pesco Salido, which I'm sure I just butchered his last name. I apologize. But anyways, he's a great guy. And he was worth, I think he was definitely the first 10 hires, if not first five. It was around that ballpark where very early on. And what he also, David, wanted Keith to do was to build a diverse workforce. And the earlier you can do that, and that was Keith's mantra, was to go out and hire diverse talent. It's just going to help the company scale that you know, strong, diverse culture that leads to even greater levels of success. Yeah. And I'm, I'm going to make the podcast mistake of naming a few people uh, because that means I'll leave others out and I apologize, but people like Keith, people like Michael Brown, who grew up at Acquia and shift and a few other places, people like Brad bachelor at applause, getting that type of person early on who can, who can really advocate for and represent not just recruiting, but how do we onboard? How do we train? How do we mentor? You know, what's the what's the culture like? Not from the CEO's point of view, but from the new employee or the new manager or the first time VP from their perspective is invaluable. All right. So what are three apps you can't live without? Three apps I can't live without. Uh, I'll give you three categories. Uh, I'm, I'm still a huge sports fan. So for me, I'm the, uh, following my Michigan teams, which is a sad plight unto itself. Um, ESPN and Bleacher Report are probably where I would go and, you know, kind of lock in on, on my teams and they're great aggregate, you know, not only do they produce great original content, but they're great aggregators uh, of things that are interesting to me. Uh, if it comes to work, it's just like everyone else, you know, we have people in Asia, Europe, and across the U S so Slack and zoom and everything in the Google suite. Uh, and then for managing my mindset, uh, part of my sabbatical was was getting into you know more and more around meditation and breath work and things like that. So there's an app called Genius uh, by a former monk named Jay Shetty. So if anyone's interested in exploring that part of themselves, uh, I recommend looking up Jay Shetty. 
uh, and potentially subscribing to his genius app. Any uh, podcast book recommendations? Well, this podcast, obviously. Ah, goes without uh, saying. <laughs> on the book side of things, uh, anything that Malcolm Gladwell or Michael Lewis wrote, I'm a big fan of. I, I'm also a big fan of, uh, of historical biographies. And so I, usually when you pick a biography, it's because of the subject. Um, but anything that Walter Isaacson or uh, Doris Kearns Goodwin, I hope I didn't butcher her name, they've First of all, they pick fascinating subjects, but secondly, they're just incredible biographers. They're not short reads, but really, really good reads. Um, and then for TV and movies, I like anything that Aaron Sorkin was a part of. Uh, so those tend to be, I, I tend to think more, I guess, about the author than the specific book or the specific podcast. All right, you're in Arizona now. So what do you like to do for fun outside of work? Uh, I, you know, even though I spent 10 years in New York and 12 plus years in Boston. I stayed loyal to my Detroit sports teams and University of Michigan sports teams. So I still follow that. Um, honestly, it's funny during the pandemic, I, I really grew to appreciate cooking. Uh, just the, you know, the everything from the shopping for it to the preparation of it to, you know, experimenting with different, uh, different ingredients. And I've never enjoyed cooking in my entire life. So that's something that's new to me. Uh, and then lastly, because I spent last winter out in Scottsdale, uh, if you're out here and you're not hiking and biking and swimming, you know, and golfing, you're kind of missing the point. Uh, so that was certainly a, a selling point for me of, of get cracking and, and getting back out to Scottsdale was it just leads me to a much more outdoor life. Well, Matt, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through your background, all the great advice as it relates to you know, progressing in one's career and uh, wishing you continued success in your new role. Well, thanks so much. I appreciate it, Keith. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.